recent events, activities and happenings between the UK and China, what that means and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. So, Steve, hello. Uh, I think this is sort of your ideal week, really. We have a back-to-back of an EU-China summit, and then from your old stomping ground, the release of the annual sentiment survey from the British Chamber of Commerce in China, hereafter sort of referred to as the BCCC. So let's let's start on the first part, and then I'd like to pick your brains for some anecdotes about your your last sentiment survey last year before we speak to Julian, who, who now runs the BCCC. So... What you've been following the EU-China summit while I was in Taiwan? What 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 are your sort of main takeaways that you've seen? Thank you, Sam. Yeah, so as you say, very exciting week for me following in market in China trade relations. So last week, a big geopolitical event took place. It's the EU-China summit. It's supposed to be an annual summit, but this is the first time it's taken place in person for about four and a half years. COVID obviously being the main driver behind that. Why I think it's quite important, well, like most Western nations, the relationship has become quite fragmented. It's become quite problematic. So like we saw with Xi and Biden, it's quite a strong statement um, that this meeting took place in person. And, you know, when world leaders meet in person, you know, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to kind of talk about the really pressing issues that, you know, the world is facing, and obviously EU and China you know, critical players in that. So the main focus from the EU, I actually thought was was pretty strong. It's very, very clearly articulated. And they were very upfront about what they wanted going into the summit. From a Chinese side, I think they were trying to manage the differences and try to avoid conflict, maybe not conflict, but hostilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, we heard from York. Mm. Um, and he essentially, and I think this is really important from the, the European side, maybe a slightly protectionist block when it comes to trade, but we won't talk about anything to do with Brexit. But essentially, the EU wanted to address some of the major imbalances they have around trade, um, as well as address some of the pressing geopolitical issues. So that's Russia, that's some of the human rights issues that they believe is taking place in China, um, as well as sort of de-risking and decoupling to address some of that. So one of the aspects that uh, Ursula von der Leyen mentioned was there's a critical imbalance when it comes to trade. Um, and that is namely a 400 billion euro deficit with China. So they essentially want to not reverse that, but they, you know, the deficit has got to come up. You know, that, that is a pretty big imbalance that they've got to address. Steve, if I could sort of pause you there, what, what, what is causing that deficit? What is this imbalance, you know, arising from? So I suppose in a very simplistic terms, um, the European side essentially saying there's restrictions on European businesses within market within China uh, to fulfill their full potential. And that's everything from services to, to goods. From the Chinese side, they export a lot more to the European Union than vice versa. So what the Europeans are saying is, look, if you were to improve your business environment, we could all win here. There could be a lot more foreign direct investment into the country, both in goods and services. And so essentially, that's what they're calling for, to address this imbalance, address sort of the outflows of China and the inflows. Um, that's a very simplistic terms, but what I thought was really interesting was they were very, very upfront about this, essentially saying that like, failure to address some of these concerns, that we don't want to go down this tit for tat, you know, policy response, similar to what we had with the, the trade war when, when Trump implemented it. And that's what the Europeans are saying. We have an opportunity right now to address this trade imbalance. So essentially, this is not any time for talk. This is time for a bit of action. 
And in terms of how it was received on the Chinese side, and also, you know, one of the things we often talk about here, and one of the points that you routinely make is about uh, rhetoric and how those sort of how that builds into the Chinese relationship with the, that sort of outside world. What's your view as to how it was received or how it went down from the Chinese side? So honestly, I had no real idea if it was a successful meeting. It's not transactional. There's no tangible outcome. You know, this is essentially we have a little bit of time to wait and see. When we're talking about the main points that the Europeans wanted to get across, it was around de-risking and trade talks, China and Russia ties, essentially saying, you know, we cannot see you supporting Russia. This is such a massive issue for the Europeans. I think it's very important and pressing when you're talking about the European Union. There was a world war in Europe 100 years ago. You know, those countries remember it and they do not want that to escalate any further. So that's a very, very serious point for the European Union. And I think the Western world is very united when it talks about the Russia-Ukraine war, and they do not want to see Russia being funded or supported um, by China. So they've said, take that very seriously. And then obviously there's the conflict around you know, Taiwan, um, South China Sea, and then the opportunity of, of, of climate change. So it's very difficult to say where this has landed. I think it is a little bit of wait and see. But as I've mentioned from the outset, there's an opportunity, right? When world leaders meet, there's an opportunity to press and to to push some of the, you know, the things that will make a real difference. Uh, from the Chinese side, I have seen some of the outputs in regards to Chinese media, and it's essentially stressing that, you know, the European and China do not want to see decoupling. They want to enhance cooperation. So, you know, if the Chinese media um, is any sense of the rhetoric coming from the Chinese government, it sort of landed relatively positively. But I think some very clear messages have been sent to the Chinese authority from the European Union. I think also one of the reasons why it's important for people in the UK, China bilateral to be across these sort of things is because, and this is, forgive me for a series of chaining arguments here, but basically... If Labour does get into government next year, there's a very strong chance that a Labour government under Keir Starmer will overlap with a American administration led by Donald Trump, at which point many of the uh, grey areas or sort of balance, balancing out between the US and the EU that we've been able to sort of sustain here when it comes to China are probably going to dry up quite fast. And I suspect you will see, given some of the rhetoric coming out of the party now, Labour moving closer to where the EU is in a lot of China-related issues, which is why it's really important for, for all of us, actually, that we're seeing what the EU is doing. We're not going to move back in the sense of, uh, you know, rejoin the EU by any means or anything like that. But uh, it, it, I think it's something worth keeping a very close eye on now to see what structures are being put into place and what rhetoric is being used going forward for the next um, sort of 18 months, two years. I guess, though, Steve, we can move on to the next section. Uh, and I can see your eyes are lighting up over there at the thought of talking about sentiment surveys. Before we get into sort of the, the interview we have with Julian, who very kindly took some time out of his day to speak to us about it, you manage this for a long time. You published a number of these sorts of uh, sentiment surveys. First of all, what's the sort of purpose of what they of what they're doing? And also, do you have any interesting stories from your time collecting uh, the information out there? So the reason I think it's very important is because it's granular. So it gives you the detail of businesses on the ground, which is very different to businesses in the UK looking into China. This, this is granular detail, which gives you the credibility to factually present arguments to the Chinese authorities and then speak to the, U the UK government to say, this is where we need support. So the idea is to essentially look at some of the market access, business environment issues and opportunities and say, this is where we should focus, or these are the market barriers that we need to push on that will have the biggest impact in regards to supporting 
British businesses on the ground. So I think it is really critical and it's really important because it's not the top companies, you know, speaking to a minister over a dinner. It's fact based in regards to speaking for the entirety of UK businesses in China. And it's a really valuable, essential vehicle to drive through potential change. Okay, there's there's my sales pitch for the British Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that fifty pounds will come in the mail tomorrow. But but you put last time you were putting it together must have been uh, pretty much under the the very short lived premiership of Liz Truss, right? Was that about the right time? So essentially, this time last year, I cannot tell you the chaos that was taking place in China. If we go back one year, I mean, it was literally um, a few weeks removed from you know protests breaking out on Beijing, Shanghai streets, all over the country. You know, the white paper protests which is absolutely remarkable when you think about it, you know, protests taking place in China, you know, but this was just a demonstration of the fatigue and, you know, the general fed up nature of the entire country dealing with, with COVID. And also, you know, people were scared, you know, if you were to get COVID, every single person, you know, would be hauled off to a, a two week camp to, to sit out COVID. And even if you came into contact with someone, you know, so the country was, was really losing its mind is the only way I'll describe it. We released our sentiment survey and what I thought was really interesting is it was just in the middle of the, the Liz Trust premiership. We basically polled people and we said, you know, what's your outlook in regards to UK-China relations um, now? And we had when Liz Trust was in power and overwhelmingly the response was negative. It was very, very pessimistic in regards to the Liz Trust UK-China relationship. Once she resigned... <laughs> We asked, the same, you know, we asked the same question and essentially the optimism's levels flipped right up. So I think that's just a real clear demonstration that rhetoric has an enormous impact on business sentiment. And we've spoken about that multiple times on this podcast in regards to businesses need certainty. They need certainty for investment. They need certainty for business operations. So I, I thought that was really, really fascinating last year. And what I thought was also you know, really challenging from a, from a UK perspective, being on the ground there. You know, it was a really tough year in 2022 in China. The business environment was just obliterated by COVID-19 lockdowns and the what if. We just really didn't know what was happening. So I'd like to welcome Julian Fisher, the chair of the British Chamber of Commerce in China. The chamber launched their annual sentiment survey, the sixth sentiment survey, I believe, which essentially pulses British businesses' outlook on the ground in China it's incredibly valuable to give us a real-time reading of the attitudes, investment decisions, and the business environment, and as well as market access issues on China. So this is the end of a very long day for Julian. He's been probably up at 5.30, BBC, Bloomberg. But now you're with the big one, Julian. This is the Beijing to Britain podcast. So, so welcome. But let's maybe just get straight into things. What are the main findings of the report and sort of maybe headline takeaways that, that kind of we all need to know? So I guess one of the headlines is that pessimism has fallen. You know, it was at record highs last year. 43% of British businesses in 2022 were pessimistic about the year coming ahead. Um, it's gone down to 29%, which I guess is positive in some way. But it's worth remembering that for the four years before then, on average, it had been about 7 or 9%. So that's still triple what it was two years before and, and beyond then. Um, and their retail and F&B are looking more positive. Energy and healthcare more positive, And obviously, built environment are not doing very well in China right now because the property sector is in serious trouble. I think one of the really um, striking stats this year was that um, given how difficult it was last year when we ran the sentiment survey in October, November is when we get all the data, 60% of British businesses said it's more difficult doing business this year than it is last year. Um, and, and that's really surprising. I mean, that was up to 75% for business and professional services. Um, you know, and I think we can kind of understand that last year it was really difficult to do business 
this year it's really difficult to make money. And with a lot of those professional service companies, there's a lack of market entry, there's a collapse in M&A, you know, falling headcount. So yeah, a, a, a kind of mixed message there that pessimism is falling somewhat, but, but British businesses are saying the majority that it's more difficult to do business this year. If I just take us back to last year, this time last year, we produced a sentiment survey. And as you mentioned, it was peak levels of pessimism. I remember being on the ground it was two weeks later than they essentially let COVID rip right the way through the country. But we did say that it was at a tipping point, And clearly the tipping point was, was COVID ripping through the country. So why on earth now is for some businesses, it's even harder to do business? You said they're not making money, but it can't just be about that. So we do ask, uh, actually, uh, uh, around what are the issues that are negatively impacting and positively impacting British business in China. Um, it was pretty clear this year. We, we give out 14 different options and, and, and then, you know, respondents sort of say whether they're positive or negative about them. The top five were all really in the same area. Number one was the domestic economy in China. Um, the next three were all around geopolitics and then one around the world economy. Um, so, you know, that, that geopolitics is, you know, UK-China relations, China's relations with the rest of the world, and then also kind of increasing nationalism around purchasing. So that, those are now the challenges for businesses. And obviously, that's, that's a lot more challenging, especially for SMEs. And I mean, that's something that we saw, that SMEs are struggling more than MNCs. The majority of SMEs have not got back to their level of the revenue that they saw in 2019. And I think that's a real problem. If I could slightly um, push a bit on that, Julian, in the report, it outlines basically three government-related concerns. There's transparency of the business environment, IT rules and regulations, and cybersecurity, and then enforcement of the rules and regulations. Could you give a bit more detail? Because obviously a lot of the listeners here will be based in the UK or in a sort of Whitehall, Westminster circles. What do those three things actually mean to the companies involved in BCCC? Mm. So I think, as Steve will know from his time back in the chamber, you know, when we started out on this advocacy push uh, about seven years ago, we realized that there was going to be always a really a real range of tangibility with the things that we were advocating for some of them we were hearing we have to include but not they're not quite so easy for the chinese government to act upon so cybersecurity and data transfer is, is clear it's really difficult for companies not knowing where they can store data how they can store data how they can transfer data where there's a national security issue i think that one number one in terms of problems is quite easy to understand. Transparency of the business environment really is just that, you know, moving between different cities, moving between different districts within cities, the way that regulations are enforced and the way that government communicates with business isn't always very clear. Now, the problem with that is that we can advocate for that or we can highlight that as a challenge. I would say that's almost more of a structural issue in China. You know, the Chinese government itself is not very transparent. So it seems quite unlikely that that's gonna change anytime soon. Um, in terms of two of the new ones that came into the top five this year, just below the, the ones that you mentioned, one is moving money outside of the country. Um, again, it doesn't feel right now that that's going to be something the government's going to be keen to act on, given that the FT reported that they're losing $50 billion a month uh, out of the country in terms of capital outflows. Um, but number five on that list was around licenses and certificates. And I think that's something throughout the time we've been doing this that we, we know is a problem that you know, if a British company comes into the market or is already in the market, regulations change, they need to get new licenses and they're not able to get them. That's a clear sign that it's not a level playing field, that they're not able to operate in the same way that a local business might. So it, it, I would say within our challenges, there's definitely a range from those that we need to mention because they're commonly cited as problems among member companies and they highlight them in the survey 
down to those that are seemingly easier for the government to move on here and hopefully will. In the report, when you've when you've raised some of these concerns that BCCC members have, you've also referenced this uh, 24 point plan from the Chinese government released a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago now. To what extent do you think that's actually going to nullify many of the concerns raised in or neutralize many of the concerns raised in this report? Or how long will it take to do that if, if that is the case? Because as you say, you know, this, this sentiment every single year changes and changes, but some companies, some SMEs, and we can speak as being a small business here at Beijing to Britain, you don't have five years for that to change. So I think it, that really reached its tipping point in May when we released our position paper. Um, the theme of the position paper this year was conditional optimism. And that word conditional was very carefully chosen, essentially saying to the Chinese government, British business is optimistic about the future on condition that certain things change. Um, I think the 24 points, you know, let's be clear, speaking to multinationals out here, British multinationals, they are increasingly seeing the access that they're getting. We at the Chamber, we've had more access in the last six months to the government than we've ever had. And in some cases, that's led to actual tangible change quite quickly. Um, the 24 points that were released recently um, for kind of encouraging uh, direct foreign investment, that was only two months ago. So I, I don't want to be too tough on the Chinese government. You know, no government, you know, anywhere on earth, including the UK government, can kind of issue change and then just make it overnight. But I do think we're going to see over the next year. And that's why I, I, I think that next year is going to be really pivotal for foreign business in China is that there is, I think what a lot of foreign businesses would, would claim out here is kind of promise fatigue. And ultimately, if these aren't followed through with, if these are just lip service to kind of appease foreign business so that they kind of go easier on China and kind of invest more, I think we've passed the point now where that's going to work. You know, maybe when the market was growing at 10% a year, there was a lot more speculation and a lot more kind of willingness to kind of ride through all of this because ultimately, you know, at the end, there were dollar bill signs in all these companies' eyes. But I think now that times are tough and they're really having to make tough decisions about investing here or investing in other territories, um, it's going to be really important. So yeah, I think our position paper next May um, is, is really going to say whether or not British business feels that those 24 points have been lived up to. And then on the actual release of the sentiment survey, how's it, how's it been received? So we know there's multiple audiences. There's the business community, which you're advocating for on, on the ground. But then there's the media, so both foreign and, and domestic, which will probably have different headlines. But then there's the UK government and the Chinese government. So more specifically, how has it been received from, from the Chinese authorities? We've seen over the last sort of few months, there's been a very clear outreach to foreign businesses to sort of ease, tone down the rhetoric We've had multiple, the UK and China have had multiple bilaterals. Neither minister is still in position, but regardless, James Cleverly came over to visit, which was quite a strong statement from the UK. So, yeah, how, how is, because the paper is filled with issues in regards to market access, business environment issues, but also opportunities as well. So, how has is, how is it landed with the Chinese authorities? Um, so, we only officially launched uh, about eight hours ago. So, so to be honest, we haven't had any engagement yet. I, I've spoken to a couple of Chinese newspapers out here. Um, I think it is worth saying that the goal of the sentiment survey really is just to reflect the sentiment of a British business in China. It's then over the next six months that we'll meet with business, run round tables, and then we'll re release the position paper, which this year had 171 different um, things that we think would improve the business environment and market access for, for British business. Um, the entire purpose of this is not to complain, it's not to criticise, it really is just to make British business um, kind of have a fairer situation in China. One thing I always say to that is I think the things that we advocate for are good for British business, I think they're good for French business, I think they're good for Chinese business. It really is just about having a business environment that is 
is more pro-business and makes things clearer and easier for everybody. Um, I, I think in terms of um, different stakeholders in this, you know, it is interesting always that, you know, when you speak to international media um, and at the same time you're speaking to Chinese media, um, what they're going to take from this is, is obviously going to be very, very different. You know, I think already we, we've had about six or seven, you know, newspapers report on this um, internationally, and they very much focused, I think, on kind of the negativity and, you know, the idea that sentiment is dropping or that, that people are not investing anymore in China. Um, I, I haven't yet seen uh, the Chinese media published, but I have no doubt that they will be relatively pleased that we are saying that at the moment, the government initiatives are being kind of warmly received. Um, of course, we're saying that's conditional on, on them being Im implemented, uh, but but who knows if that, that kind of part of the sentence will be included. And, and Julian, can I push you again on that fantastic phrase, sort of promise fatigue? Uh, with like a Westminster hat on, or a sort of British politician hat on, one of the questions that I often see levied at British businesses in China is, what is your risk tolerance? And, you know, you're reflecting the sentiment of a number of businesses here, which means you will have had a number of conversations over the preceding year. And, you know, you know, uh, as well as Steve does, that I inhale reports and sentiment surveys that you guys put out. I absolutely love them. So uh, this is coming from a, a series of years of reading them now. When you speak to the companies, what is it that for them is just going to be the point where they say, actually, there's you, you already mentioned here that there's no longer 10% growth, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you foresee reflecting what you've heard from your companies as the next pivotal moment? Is it around Taiwan? Is it around internal Chinese politics? Is it around the economy freezes to a point where it's no longer sustainable, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, it's obviously very difficult for me to comment. I'm, I'm not a politician and I'm not a kind of geopolitics expert. You know, I think we can all sense that if there was something significant in Taiwan, that would have, you know, a lot of businesses would have to make really big decisions about what they were doing here, but it would very much depend on how that was enacted and all those kind of things. I think in terms of um, what is going to kind of, where is the risk here? It seems more and more that really it's just about business fundamentals. You know, when you look, um, whenever the, the sentiment survey is released, you know, the, the, the policy team in the chamber release it, there's one thing I always look at every year. It's one of the first things that I go to and it's, it's, um, are you increasing investment? Yes, no. Um, and, and if you are, why? And for the last five years that we've done this, it's always market potential. It's always been in the 80%. And, and that always worries me, right? Because I don't think that businesses anymore in China should be investing because it's big or because there's lots of people there. That feels very kind of Carl Crow, 300 million customers. You know, it's, and, and this year, the top two reasons, uh, number one was aligning with government initiatives. And you know that that's smart business in China, because ultimately, if the government has given the green light to clean energy or whatever it might be, you're going to run into a, a lot less regulatory hurdles. Number two was demand for goods and services. And I think really what we're seeing is a bit of a rebalancing here. I think there was a huge amount of speculation, you know, in, in China over the last 20, 30 years. And in some cases, it paid off. In some, it hasn't paid off at all. And on, you know, from a British perspective, I want our businesses out there, um, out here to be making money um, and to be to, to have sort of sustainable business. And, and I think as long as that continues and there's nothing wildly dramatic in the geopolitical landscape, I think that's a good thing. But I think if businesses are thinking about coming out here or are struggling out here, um, I think that they will leave because it just is not an easy place to do business. And that is one thing I guess I always want to say at this point on, on doing business in China is, it's not, you know, when businesses struggle here, British businesses, it's not always because 
you know, of regulatory situations because of business environment and market access issues. It's also because I think it's the single most competitive business environment on the planet. Um, and, you know, it's not for everyone anymore. And, and I think rose tinted glasses are off. I think that's good for British business. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually a point that we heard from Tule on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about the Chinese EV market, how, how incredibly competitive it was between all the different businesses out there to produce the best and cheapest models and that sort of thing. And I think it's a point that's often missed from the UK perspective, and that there's like the view that there's two or three major companies in each industry. You know, I know that there's sort of a lot of discussion at the moment around the messaging around China and, you know, that contest, compete, collaborate, um, you know, model that I, that I think has been used. Um, I might have got one of those wrong or, or you know, mis, mischosen one of those. But I think something that I would say to that is it feels often from here that that's really a question of waiting. I'm OK with all three of those and agree with all three of those. But if, if we're going to spend 90 percent of the time contesting, um, that's not going to move the UK forward, you know, globally in terms of competition. For me, compete needs to be 99 percent of what we do in the UK, because, yeah, that's true. And we saw that this year from the survey. We saw that. Um, British businesses were saying, you know, innovation in China is one of the main reasons that they're there. Because if you can't compete in China these days, um, you can't compete globally. And China is going to go global. That is a, that is a fact. Um, it has more, you know, businesses in the Forbes 500 than, than America does. They are going to start going global in a big way. So yeah, for me, uh, you know, in my message, I think to anyone in the UK politics and, and, and is that we need to be competitive and we really need to focus on that competition and not just you know, raising issues with China at every possible moment. So this is our second last show of the season. Next next week, we'll be doing a wrap up show of 2023 and 2024. So maybe just from your perspective, maybe can you give us more general reflections on the year that has just gone between the UK and China? And then maybe predictions moving forward for 2024 or things that you would like to see? So I think in terms of UK, China, it has been relatively stable. I, I think that we, we asked uh, in the survey our members what was the most positive moment of UK-China engagement this year. And by far and away, it was the James Cleverly visit. Um, and, and I really feel that, you know, regardless of your politics, um, his messaging was good. Um, his stance on China was strong. It was assertive, but he also had a real clear idea about why he wanted to speak to China. You know, his, his line that, you know, it's the second biggest economy in the world. Um, you know, it's the second biggest trading part of the UK. It doesn't make sense not to engage and to visit, you know, and I, and I think that, that was really positive. And I hope that continues, um, not just with Cameron, but with, with the government more broadly. Um, you know, we have to be able to talk rationally about China. Um, I think it's super important. And just on that note, you know, you guys are doing a really great job on that. I think, you know, the discussions you have, very level-headed, talking about the challenges, talking about the opportunities, I think that needs to happen more. Um, in terms of what's coming up, um, I guess the worry for us in the business community here is that the election year is going to cause serious problems for UK-China relations. Because if if China becomes a political football and each party is just kind of outdoing each other to show how strong they can be on China, then, you know, China cares about that kind of stuff deeply and is going to read the same articles that we read and is going to feel that it's being kind of used and abused. Um, so I, I hope that isn't the case. I, I hope that there are more ministerial visits. But again, I worry that people will hesitate because it, it will seem like a political decision to come here. Yeah, I, I, I think that we need to learn to talk about China more rationally. And I hope that, you know, whatever happens next year with the election, that that will give us at least four or five years of single party rule where they can actually have some stability and a bit more clarity on a China strategy. Yeah, look, stepping away from a China strategy, just five more years of a peaceful 
singular government would be good for everyone in the UK, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting bored of having to learn new prime ministers' names. It's not it's not something I should be doing. <laughs> I will say too, I mean, it is amusing. I know in the, the Chinese Chamber of Commerce have just released their sentiment survey. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read that, you know, in the UK. And when we met them this June, you know, we said to them, you know, it's, it, it's really difficult to do business in China. It's just so, such a lack of stability. And they just turned around to us and said like, what are you talking about? You know, we've gone through five prime ministers in the last five years. And it is a fair point sometimes. I think we can imagine that things are really difficult in other countries, but it's not easy, I think, for foreign businesses to do business in, in the UK all the time either. Well, one of the questions I would actually just like to know personally, so when I left, it, it really seemed like the foreign business population was just falling off a cliff. There, there didn't seem to be anyone there anymore. And then that seemed to accelerate into 2023, maybe slow down slightly because because the borders opened. But kind of what is the, the British business population in China? And I noticed from the from the survey, it said there was a lot more focus on just domestic hires, middle management, senior management, just right the way across the board. So my big concern is that people to people, that business to business, cultural connections. And that's just not going to happen if it's, do you know what I mean? If there's not enough foreign business population in China. So is there any initial um, data around that? So one thing I would say to that is that that is a global trend. Um, you know, if you, you know, obviously I, my, in my day job, I'm involved in the education sector. And, you know, if you look at international schools around the world, um, the truth is that um, expat, the kind of traditional model of the expat has changed globally, right? You know, th this idea of shipping in someone to run a company, I think that is changing. And I think like so many things, COVID just accelerated that trend. That trend was already happening in China. More and more businesses um, were kind of, you know, entirely localizing. If you look at British businesses in China, a lot of British business out there, big MNCs, they are wholly staffed by Chinese nationals because ultimately they understand the language, they understand the culture, they're doing business out there. You know, it would be quite strange to have a business operating in the UK that was entirely staffed by Japanese people, for example. You know, so, so I think in that sense, I think it is a global trend. And I think, um, you know, it, it got accelerated by COVID. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the period in China where there are kind of hordes of foreigners. You know, I think, Steve, you were there in 2008. So was I. You know, during the Olympics, that was just such an incredible time. And it also felt like, you know, you know, foreigners there were needed in so many sectors to kind of, you know, raise the standards of what was happening in China. But I think now, increasingly, China feels pretty confident that it can do most things itself. And I don't know necessarily whether you need foreign you know, expats involved, especially those that come out here on a two year, three year cycle. Is that really good for the business? What are they going to be able to do in that time? It's going to take them a year or two just to understand the culture. And then by that time, they're already leaving. So I don't think I think I think with some things with China, um, we can kind of look at them maybe quite critically and feel um, that there's something kind of, you know, going on. I think in this case, it's more just rational decision making by the government. I don't think there's any kind of anti foreigner agenda by the government. If anything, I think that the Chinese government is desperate to have more foreigners back to kind of avoid that perception. I just think that British businesses don't need foreigners in this market anymore. Julian, just to quickly nip, nip into that, sorry. Uh, do, do you, anecdotally, I heard about six months ago, that there were, I mean, honestly, a handful of thousand British uh, business people still in Shanghai. Do you have any numbers that have been floating around your neck of the woods? So, so, so I did share something that I have heard with the FT today in an interview, and they, uh, they did publish it. So therefore, now that it's out there, <laughs> I guess I can use the same, I guess I can use the same thing. Uh, um, through the grapevine, I guess it's worth saying this, the only person who knows how many foreigners there are in China is the Chinese government, is the PSB. 
Um, and they do re um, release a census. Unfortunately, the last census they released was 2020, um, sorry, uh, which was um, conducted in 2019. So at this point, it's completely meaningless because that's pre-pandemic data. Um, we heard that there were 30, let me get this right, 36,000 Brits in China uh, in 2019. And there are now um, 16. And then we heard that there were 15,000 Brits in Shanghai um, on the same time period that is now down to 4,000. Um, but, but again, you know, when we've spoken to other chambers and other embassies, that kind of drop off of, you know, 40 to 60% of your nationality seems to be a pretty much across the board from, from Western nations. But I think with the UK in particular, it is worth noting that during that time, um, you also had the double reduction and that killed um, after school tutoring and language and learning centers. And my, my guess is that there were tens of thousands of young, you know, in their 20s, Brits teaching English in various learning centers. So that drop off, I think, is probably more extreme just because of that linguistic factor. Whereas, you know, when you talk about Germans and French on the whole, they're here doing kind of more classic business. And so that drop off is, is maybe more extreme. I will say just two more things. I, I guess, some, um, you know, just to throw this one in, you know, one, one thing I think that happens a lot, um, uh, seemingly from the UK side, um, is especially now, right, that there are challenges in the Chinese economy. There's a lot of kind of smugness and a lot of people saying that they called this 10, 15 years ago. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I remember being in China 10, 15 years ago and thinking, wow, they're really making all the right moves. And I guess one thing I would sort of just say to your listeners is, I really think we need to avoid all of that fatalism. You know, this idea that China has always been heading in one direction and it's only going in one direction. Obviously, with the centralization of power now, it really does fall more under, you know, the power of one man or, you know, a, a smaller group of people. But ultimately, you know, people can change, countries can change, time makes a big difference. So I, I guess I, I would make that point that um, let's be very careful about saying that, that things can't change because I think, you know, we need to keep talking, we need to keep changing and discussing ideas and, and then maybe there's a possibility um, of a slightly more peaceful planet. Um, I guess the only final thing that I would throw in as well is just that, um, you know, we have had more access this year uh, as the British Chamber than we've ever had before. And that obviously is a sign that the government wants to listen to business, you know, how it's going to act on that, you know, we, we still haven't seen fully. Um, but at this point, if you are a British business operating in China, and you're not a member of the British Chamber, I think it's essential that you join. So please, please get in touch with us. And we would love to support you. Absolutely. Second that the voice of British business in China. Very wise. Well, look, uh, Julian, we're going to let you go. You've always had an absolutely rocket of a day up at the crack of dawn. So all we can say is thank you so much for your time. We'll include a link to the survey or the sentiment survey down below. And uh, we look forward to following up and hearing how the sort of advocacy is going over the next couple of months. Thank you so much, guys. Please keep doing the good work you're doing. It's awesome. Brilliant. Well, look, we'll include a link to that sentiment survey in the bottom of this podcast, wherever you get that. Uh, so you'll be able to read that yourself. Next week is our final week of the podcast for this season, fear not. We will be doing a session or a podcast episode looking back on 2023 and making some incredibly futile and soon to be uh, laughed out the room predictions of 2024. Steve and I will both be putting together three of each. So keep your ear out for that. And in the meantime, what are you, your predictions uh, and what are your favorite moments, if you, if, they, if you have them, from 2023 on the UK-China bilateral? Let us know before next week, and we may even discuss some of them too. Steve, anything else to add? 
No, that's awesome. We're going to be doing top threes next week. So top three moments, top three people, top three predictions. It's going to be great, Sam. And we can measure ourselves all against this next year. <laughs> Perfect. Nothing like a horrible KPI hanging over you for 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Steve, take care. <laughs>